Today, more than ever, companies like Lyft are striving to become better organizations that reflect the population and communities they are serving. In this episode of the Ivy Podcast, we hosted a conversation with Lyft's head of inclusion and diversity, Tarek Myers, about how to empower diverse teams that create a culture of belonging. Throughout the conversation, Tarek illuminates just what it means to be truly inclusive and the role each of us can play in making this happen. This episode is brought to you by Emerge 212 Office Space Elevated, New York City's premier operator full-service office suites. Emerge 212's fully furnished offices are sleek, sophisticated, and high-tech, perfect for seasoned entrepreneurs who want to put their best foot forward, companies seeking to launch a New York City team, or businesses looking to secure an address in the city with virtual office capabilities. With locations near Grand Central, Rockefeller Plaza, and Columbus Circle, Emerge 212 enables companies to elevate their meeting and business experience through high-end, customized spaces, so your business can focus on operating, not operations. To begin working out of Manhattan's premier office space, or to reserve a conference room for an upcoming event, visit Emerge212.com. Mention Ivy and you'll receive two months of complimentary rent on a 13-month lease. So Tark and I were, we were in the back a little bit ago, getting prepped, chatting, getting warmed up, and one of the big things that we talked about of what we wanted to, to bring to this conversation with all of you is courage, but also honesty and authenticity. Um, and so to, to begin the, the question, I have to be honest with you, Tark. I am uncomfortable talking about race, gender, identity, sexuality, all of, all of those things. Mm-hmm. Why? Are these things so difficult to talk about? Uh, well, first, uh, hello. Uh, <laughs> hi. Uh, best introduction ever, so thank you. Um, you know, uh, they're just tough, right? So uh, we were chatting about this in the back. Um, when you work as a diversity and inclusion practitioner, how many folks are in the HR space, people space, just so I can see? And how many folks feel like they're diversity and inclusion advocates wherever they are in their spaces? Yeah. So. Uh, what's unique about the tech space is that uh, we may, we've made diversity and inclusion be this new thing, right? As if exclusion and people not being able to be their authentic selves and people not feeling like they can belong is uh, something that's new, and it's just not, right? Um, the majority of our, our country's history, uh, frankly, if we're, if we're being candid, um, has been about exclusion uh, for certain people because of uh, exactly what Patrick said, for who they love, uh, who they pray to what they look like, uh, what neighborhoods they came from, uh, what's in their savings account, uh, if they have a savings account, uh, what schools they went to, uh, what's their pedigree, I mean, you name it. Uh, it's been about keeping folks out. So um, when I think about then how difficult those conversations have been able to be had on both the national and local level, I can only imagine that in this new and emerging space like tech, it's just as difficult to have these conversations. Um, the second piece I, that I think about is that when I, when I talk to my grandmother and my mother, uh, two extraordinarily powerful single women uh, from Boston, shout out to 617 if anyone's from Boston. <laughs> Boston. Um, but, uh, you know, they never had the opportunity to actually talk about race, sex, class, gender, identity in their workplaces, right? Their jobs was to show up, you do your job, you punch in, you punch out, uh, and then uh, you go home. And so all the isms that impacted their experiences outside the workplace were just not things that you talked about internally. Um, so we're seeing a shift, I think, in the industry where despite these conversations being so difficult and being so uncomfortable, 
And despite the fact that I don't always know how to show up and be a male ally to the women in the workplace, right? Or I don't always know how to show up as an able-bodied man or a cisgendered man to our LGBTQ community or to our disability community, right? But uh, I know that, I, that I'm in a space now that's starting to take some action around courageous conversations that my mother and my grandmother didn't have. Um, so what we're doing right now, right, and the spaces and the reach that we have in our networks um, is that one step in the right direction to start opening up a dialogue around things that have historically been so difficult for our, our communities to engage. Oh, there's your mic. Dance. Dance. <laughs> I, uh, my, my dad grew up in, a, in an environment of, he had seven older sisters, all like some of the strongest women that I ever met, so I totally identify with, with the story. Heck yeah. Heck yeah. 617. 617 or 857. 857 works too. <laughs> so, to, to that point, the, the last point that you're making about opening up conversations like, like this, how, how can we foster meaningful conversations around race, gender, sexuality, identity, all of these things? Yeah, so it's also a tough question because there's no cookie cutter answer. Um, by a show of hands, and you can be honest since we're in a safe place, uh, safe place, safe bubble of trust, I don't know what we're going to do, but it's a bubble of trust. We're in the bubble. Um, how many folks honestly feel like they work in a community where having, com having these conversations is actually easy, it's open, they're supported, that sort of thing? Just by a show of hands. Uh, how many folks feel like they're working in an environment where those type of conversations are difficult to have or probably not encouraged to have them? And how many folks wish they worked in an environment where they would love to have those type of conversations? So you would think, um, that when you work at an enterprise like Lyft uh, that talked about you know, the ability for everyone to be themselves, that no matter who they are, who they love, who they pray to, all that jazz, that they have a place in the front seat, that it would be so easy to have these conversations internally. Right? Um, the reality is that it wasn't easy. Right? So we could talk about how we wanted to create and expand transportation access for underserved communities. We can talk about how we want to reimagine our cities. But we had such trouble talking about the experiences of people who lived in those cities. So when we were creating our diversity and inclusion strategy, the first thing was not to focus on the numbers, because everybody was trying to play, everybody and their mama, as my mother would say, was trying to um, play this diversity game, which was like, how can we move you know, a needle on a map or a needle on a graph to show the representation of folks that we had um, in our workforce internally? But for us, we wanted to take a different approach. While we valued representation, and representation is very important for public accountability, we also had to double down on the fact that we had to create the most dynamic and safe environment so when people walked in our doors, they felt like they could actually be safe. And they felt, they felt like they could be their authentic selves. Uh, but it wasn't easy for us to even start that conversation. So I'll give you a great example. And we talked about this a little bit. Um, Y'all remember what happened in Charlottesville? Yeah, wasn't too long ago, um, sadly. Um, but what we learned um, in Charlottesville was that, and this wasn't lost on us based on you know, the previous events, whether it was with Pulse Nightclub or others, that when folks walk through our doors, you know, as a company, we have these values of be yourself, right? How many folks have a value, be yourself, or something along those lines? Yeah, it's like, OK, what does that mean? Um, but for us, this value of be yourself also meant that you're carrying the weight of all of this trauma that's happening in this world on your shoulders when you walk through our doors every day, no matter the tragedy. So whether it was the Pulse nightclub incident, whether it was what happened in Vegas, whether it was folks who were impacted by natural disasters, um, or in our case, Charlottesville, um, folks were carrying that with them to work. And folks wanted to talk about it and didn't had no idea how to do it. So for us, we opened up the conversation, and this is, and I think this leads to another question of yours later. 
which is, you know, one, how do we talk about it? So one, you have to create an environment in your companies and in your spaces, whether formal or informal, where you can actually have these conversations no matter how comfortable they are. The second piece, which is where you opened up this conversation earlier, which is you gotta be courageous, right? And you gotta assume the best of intent. So for a lot of folks in this room and for a lot of folks in our industry, they've never had to talk about their experiences before. They've never had to talk about their racialized experience or their ethnic experience or their gendered experience, uh, their socioeconomic class or anything like that. And so for, to even approach the conversation took an extraordinary amount, uh, extraordinarily amount of courage. The third piece is to take action which is that it's not enough just to talk about the problems, right? And to curate spaces like these where we, where we level set issues, but instead to, to create a substantial action plan, no matter how big or how small, um, that gets to the heart of the issue. So when I think of what we did in Charlottesville, we created space very organically, booking about 13, 14 conference rooms around the nation where we could talk about it. We were courageous in our process by inviting everyone, not just African-American employees or you know, our black and brown team members or our employee resource groups, but everyone to the table to have a conversation about race in the workplace and not only what was happening outside of the workplace, but race in the workplace. And the third piece was we took action and we wouldn't leave that room until we came up with three solid action plans. And one of those was to leverage the power of our product, which was the most beautiful. So folks have heard of our Roundup and Donate program. For folks who don't know, as a passenger or driver, you can opt in to round up your fare to the nearest dollar to donate it to a cause of your choice. In less than 24 hours, we were able to add the Southern Poverty Law Center, the nation's foremost organization fighting hate um, and hate groups um, uh, in the United States and, and uh, slightly uh, globally, to be able to be a partner on Roundup and Donate. All of that started with talking about race, Right? Being courageous and assuming that everybody had a voice in that room. And there are some folks who are extraordinarily uncomfortable about talking about racial dynamics and being courageous in the process. And three, we committed to action. That it wasn't enough to be stagnant in our approach, but that we actually had to do something about it. To me, that's what it means to create an inclusive space, where you let people show up authentically, where you let people share their experiences, and when you commit to leveraging your company's resources to do something that's action-oriented. Wow. Thank you. You're welcome. You know what I'm saying? It's the wine. That's it, you know. <laughs> oh, man, I wish you all the back could hear the funny comments. Like, we'll tweet them out. Don't tweet them out. Don't tweet them out. We'll tweet them out. Don't tweet them out. <laughs> so let's, let's rewind a little bit because we don't, we don't admit. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's what this is all about. Uh, so tell us a little bit more about yourself, your background, how you arrived here, and why, why this space is where you want to make an impact. Tell us your story a little bit more. Okay. Um, Y'all can always follow me on Snapchat, Instagram too. I put my stories out there. Um, so, Tariq. Um, where do I start? Uh, so, I was a baby gap model. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. So, but I, but I really was a baby gap model. Y'all can find me out there. Um, so, long story short is, um, I learned pretty early on. So I grew up in this community, grew up in Boston. For anyone who's from the East Coast and grew up in a neighborhood like mine, um, I was an ambitious young guy who, just like my friends, like we had dreams of being politicians, right? And lawyers and doctors and presidents. And then we knew it was possible to be a president. Um, shout out to my homie, Obama. Um, but uh, you know, we knew that we, we had these dreams. And, and that was when we were about, you know, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11. Um, but at the same time, you know, as we got older, we saw banks divesting from our neighborhoods. Like, you know, what once were banks became check cashing places, like produce stores became liquor stores, right? Like, 
McDonald's moved in and fast food joints became the norm. Um, we saw that our schools were falling apart and like folks weren't getting jobs and we didn't have access to transportation. Like all these issues as we aged and as we actualized through our transitional adolescence going through high school, literally it felt like opportunity was being drained from our communities. Um, and so for me, when I, when I finally got to high school and, and through college and figuring out what my life plan was, like I knew that there were so many voices of the margins, like so many folks who were incredibly talented, who slowly saw you know, this, this light that they had in their, in their hearts at a young age like drift away when they really wanted to actualize. And so what I made a decision to do very early on was that I would commit myself to always telling those stories and that no matter what space I was in, no matter what company I worked for, or organization I worked for, or event that I was at, that I was always raise the experiences of the margins and bring those voices to the center. Because I truly believe that if you better the experiences of folks who have been most left out, that, you, that everyone benefits from it, right? And so the folks that have been at the margins um, are often like the canaries in the coal mine, right? So they're the first to tell you when a policy hits them in a difficult way. They're the first to tell you when a program's gonna hit them the way. We saw it in our financial recession, right? Where it was members of our aging community and folks of the disability community and, and communities of color and low-income folks and folks who were living in cities and folks who were living in public housing, they were hit hardest by our financial crisis and they were hit first. So that brought me to the Green Lining Institute where I worked on our economic equity team and part of my job, as you mentioned, was to take the voices of 150 coalition groups um, around the country and essentially empower those folks to create substantive policy recommendations for our federal regulators. So, you know, we got Auntie Maxine on, on the Financial Services Committee, you know, who's always reclaiming her time, definitely still reclaiming her time. Um, you know, you had Director Cordray at the CFPB. You had, you know, Chair Yellen at the, board, at the Federal Board of Reserves. I mean, we were literally, like, reaching places that these community-based organizations have never imagined reaching before. Um, and so I felt like I was doing my job. Um, and then I met Lyft, and I fell in love, right? And I only met Lyft because uh, I was too lazy to walk to BART, and so <laughs> they were my first or last mile solution. Um, and so, and every day I got into a Lyft ride, I was hearing these incredible stories of folks who were using, leveraging the platform to achieve their dreams, right? So they were students, you know, like I was at one point, Kind of long ago, but not too long ago, to be honest. Um, but there were students who were using this to pay for school, and moms and dads who were using this to, using the platform to you know, do home repairs and to stay at home. And there were women and, and, and caregivers who took breaks in their, you know, in their employment histories to be caregivers and tried to break back into the workforce, and everyone said no, right? Or our retirees who wanted some extra income. I mean, you name it. Like these were folks, everyday folks who who were our outsiders. They were the folks who were told no so often and then one platform gave them one leap step or one opportunity to say yes. So that inspired me to join the team. That's why I did government relations. That's why I elevated their voices to some of our political stakeholders around the country. And then we reached a point where I said, there's no way that we can create a dynamic experience for our folks in the front seat if we don't first create a dynamic experience for folks at home. Um, and so that's when I took on this diversity and inclusion role. And the only person that I truly do it for at the end of the day um, is my little sister, she's 11 years old, her name's Kalea, I named her, namesake, take credit for it. Um, she's 11 years old and she has these dreams of becoming an engineer. And it broke my heart one day when we signed her up for this coding camp um, at, out of MIT and 
this young girl walks in the door so excited and ambitious and ready to take you know, on these challenges and walks out and doesn't feel like that she can belong. And so for me, uh, when I have the hard days and when I have the days where I'm feeling down and the days where this work gets difficult, I think of Kalea and I think that it's, it's our job in this room to ready our industry and ready our world for the little boys and girls like Kalea uh, because we may not actualize and really see the, the benefit of the work that we're doing, but they deserve a better future um, and she deserves a better future. And so that's what keeps me committed to doing this every day. Thank you. Yeah. <clears throat> so you've provided a couple examples of, of actualization and the power that that can have on a, on a person. Um, one of the questions that I, that I want to have is to, to really like paint, paint the picture for, for all of us here, representing different companies, communities, and backgrounds. Like, what is like full actualization, and why is that important, and what does that have as an impact on our communities or our companies? Like, why is actualization a goal? Oh, uh, it's, it's, it's a lot, right? Like, <clears throat> I think it comes down to our world is getting more diverse every day, right? So taking the global context out of it, just in the US alone, by 2052, we're gonna be a majority people of color led country, the minority is becoming the majority, and yet this idea of inequities continues to grow, right? So not only is the gender wealth gap continuing to grow, shout out to Equal Pay Day on April 10th, but also our, um, you know, our racial wealth gap is continuing to grow. And it's insane, given the buying power that these communities have, and yet they've been left out in a lot of our spaces. Um, and they've been looking for allies, both in this room and outside this space, to really help them come along um, this what seems like an endless historical journey towards equity, and it just hasn't happened. Um, but what I believe also is that um, in terms of authenticity, in terms of actualizing, um, you have to understand that for a lot of communities who have been left out, um, they've been told that being themselves or being authentic is a bad thing, right? So I'm going, I'm, we're going to get real for a minute, right? So <clears throat> and I'll use myself as an example. Uh, a young black man growing up in, in the city of Boston, right? You walk into a space and you may have encounters with police officers, right? Or some other form of law enforcement. And you're raised to say, yes, sir, no, sir, right? You are on your P's and Q's because you never know what the outcome of that engagement's gonna be. That's fact, not fiction. Like, young brothers, you know, no matter the class structure, no matter their experiences, while there's not one unified black experience in this world, one thing that a lot of brothers and sisters can connect on is what it's like to walk through this world and engage law enforcement in that level. Um, and so, imagine then, you know, feeling like that type of experience is replicated over and over again. So you walk into a store and you may be followed, or you, you walk into a place and you may be questioned, or because of who you are, you may be denied a home loan, right? Or because of experiences outside of your control, you may be denied a job. Like that experience of being yourself follows you each and every step of the way. So now, fast forward 20, however many years later, and you're, um, you're applying for a job at these companies that say be yourself, right? But you literally have no idea how to show up because you've been told of, and you've been taught that there are consequences in being your authentic self when you walk into spaces. That you may not get that job, Tarek, you know, if you don't say yes ma'am, no ma'am. That you may not get that job if you don't wear a suit and make sure that your shoes are shined and your, and your clothes are pressed. Right? Like, that's a real thing. And so what I believe is that we're not creating you know, products for this world 
um, you know, that, that the folks that, are, that reflect some monolithic culture or some homogenous culture, we're creating products for every single person in this room and every single pers person in the US and hopefully every single person in the globe. And so we know that we have to empower our team members to be their most authentic selves so that they, one, are more productive, like let's call it for what it is in terms of the business case for diversity, engaged employees and happy employees, employees that feel like they can belong are more productive, um, higher retention rates, and more importantly, that they can create products that reflect their experiences. So a great example is, uh, anyone here from the Yay area, Bay area, 510? Okay, see that's a little better than Boston. Um, so we think about our deaf and hard of hearing community, right? When we launched as a platform, Lyft was a flexible work opportunity for our deaf of hard of hearing community. Um, but what we realized is that that community was having such a dynamic experience um, and a different experience in, in the driver's seat. Uh, couldn't figure out why. Um, but then what we found is by simply sending a text message that said, hey, your driver is deaf of hard of hearing, let them lead the way in communication, like that literally transformed the experience that our deaf and, our, and the hard of hearing community was having and also their passengers. It took a member of our team and being courageous and authentically themselves to call us out and say, y'all gotta do better, right? And we see replications of these experiences over and over again of when people can come to the table, be their authentic selves, um, actualize into who they're meant to be and actually impact our product and our world. I think it's, it's really powerful when you talk about designing products for, for everybody yeah. and how that creates that space for actualization. Um, so let's, let's dive in a little bit deeper. So you, you've been talking a little bit about your, your experience within, within Lyft and a lot of the different initiatives and projects that you're working on. From more of like a, a higher, higher level corporate level, like what, what responsibility does corporate America have to prioritize or spearhead initiatives in diversity and inclusion? <clears throat> I mean, they have every responsibility too, right? Like every responsibility. So um, I believe that, um, well, taking a step back, one, if corporations want to be around, especially in the US, uh, for a little bit longer, they have to start really thinking about building products for the changing face of America and like really building products for uh, not the folks who are, you know, their inbound consumers, so the folks that they're easiest or they're easily able to access, but all those folks that they're not able to access. Um, I talk about product equity all the time that it's not enough just to build products for folks who are your, the folks who are low-hanging fruit. Um, that'll make you money today. But what about all those folks who, um, who have been left out of your product development or your process? How do you capitalize on that consumer as well? So just from a, a business standpoint. Uh, we saw it in the banking industry really well, that it was great to rely on the old boy network to further and grow our businesses, right? To, to lend to, um, to build with, to help with M&As. But at the end of the day, there was a huge community of folks um, with extraordinary buying power who are looking for opportunities from banks and others to capitalize um, on their experiences. So that's just a business case, but we'll, we'll, we'll put that aside. Um, I think that the business community has always played a dynamic way in shaping um, the public discourse. So because of their reach, because of their platforms, like how many of y'all are on Twitter? Twitter, got a handle? Okay, I'm gonna let y'all follow me later. Um, <laughs> but on some form of social media, right? So most folks are on social media, and so, um, or they're drinking a cup of coffee, right? Or they're using a Lyft. And so you see these enterprises 
rising now more than ever that are taking stands on values-based uh, uh, issues, right? So you have Howard Schultz, who's, who doubled down on his um, barista engagement at Starbucks. You know, you have the Zuckerberg Chan Initiative that's doing its thing. You have um, Sheryl Sandberg, who's doing her thing when it comes to gender pay equity and lean in. You have these folks who are literally leveraging their platforms because of the audiences that they can reach. Um, for us, we realized, and we weren't sure at first whether we had the same reach, but we knew we had a responsibility to our consumers to espouse our values, but we knew we had a platform that other folks didn't have. So you may have seen that um, we've taken some pretty hard stances on um, a travel ban uh, where we donated a million dollars to the ACLU. Um, we've signed almost every piece of um, advocacy legislation around the LGBTQ community, especially for our trans community and supporting it. Um, so most notably uh, in uh, South Carolina and in Tennessee, we said we don't wanna do business there if this is the type of legislation that we're considering. So I think that the business community has a responsibility not only to the consumers that they're serving, but because of the nature of their platforms to be able to lean in on some advocacy issues and some social issues that are important to them. Um, but a lot of folks struggle, I realized, and trying to find what values are important to them. And so I think we're finding our sweet spot at Lyft. So right now we're just kind of leaning into everything, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, what an exciting discovery opportunity to uh, clarify the values that the company stands for. Absolutely, it's cool. <laughs> it's cool. <laughs> so let's, let's dive in a little bit deeper and get a little bit more, more tactical and, and strategic with, with a lot of the, the yep. work that you all are doing. Um, so what, what steps, You've talked about a number of different initiatives, a number of different projects. Like what, what are some of the big steps that, that Lyft is taking to promote diversity and inclusion in the workplace? So this is my pitch. I'm going to pitch y'all. Everybody should come work at Lyft. Uh, just kidding. <laughs> but you should. Um, so uh, for us, uh, everyone does diversity and inclusion differently. For us, we, we try to figure out how we can impact the entire employee and product lifecycle. Uh, I was a team of one for a long time, now I'm a, a mighty team of two. But a lot of the work that I've done um, has been you know, leveraging a lot of our cross-functional partnerships. Some of our, my colleagues are in the room. Um, so what do we do? So we realized that as we're attracting, selecting, developing, or retaining candidates, we knew that we, we had to double down on every part of the employee life cycle. So from attract, we realized that we weren't really telling our brand story very well, right? Like we were really good about talking about inclusion in the front seat, but we were really bad about talking about our workforce story. So we had to do an employee uh, uh, branding refresh from rewriting our job descriptions to make them more exclusive, or inclusive, excuse me. So not necessarily, well they are still exclusive, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know, no one really writes them like we write them. But, um, but we had to remove like this idea of, you know, like what does it mean to be like a ninja coder? Like none of that really made sense. Um, or like being swanky, like I just learned what swanky was like last week and I was like, I don't know why that was in a JD. Um, but we had to really think about making our, our job descriptions more inclusive. Um, the other piece is employer branding, right? So at a time you would go right on the Lyft website, you would not see any representation of any bit of diversity and we'll, we'll own it, um, represented in our employee branding, right? So you have all these communities who are looking for places to go and you have all these companies who are competing for their talent, but they have no representations of the talent that they're really trying to, to, to acquire on their employee branding. It was absolutely insane. Um, and so we were recognizing that and I'll also state this fact, don't quote me on it, um, but uh, that our inbound applicants were actually less diverse than our, than our current workforce. And we were like, why is this? And we realized that we just weren't bringing our story to communities. Um, so how do we double down on that? So in addition to doing an employee brand refresh, um, we also brought our company to communities. We did black in tech events in Harlem, and we did Latin in tech events um, over in the Mission, and 
Um, we did women in tech events all over the country. And instead of making them recruiting events where we were treating talent like talent harvest, we simply created these spaces where we could tell our lift story. And if it was your flavor and it was your flavor of Kool-Aid, then you were going to drink it. And if it wasn't, you got some good food and some good drinks and you met some cool people. Um, our selection process, right? So it's not enough to get folks to the top of the funnel. It's about creating a well-rounded selection process that evaluates people not only just about around their pedigree or what company they work for, but who they are and what they can do. So we piloted in our software engineering space uh, a blind coding exercise. So folks, you know, for, and I'm not the best technical person to explain this process, but I'm going to try. Um, but folks come in, they do a peer coding exercise. Uh, instead of a whiteboard exercise. But what's different about our process is that we then added a blind grader to the process. So we, that blind grader didn't know what school you went to, what company you worked for, what background you had. They just judged you solely on the work that you can do. And it leveled the playing field for folks who had never done a technical exercise like that before or who felt like they were coming against stereotype threat because they didn't work for a company that had this high pedigree or they didn't come from a traditional coding background. Um, developing retention is something that's really tied to us. So folks know that um, as we move along the employee life cycle, development's really important. So everyone knows that you know, uh, people leave companies because of their managers, and we've all had shitty managers you know, in the past, right? Let's just keep it real. So for us, what we realized is the best way to socialize our diversity and inclusion message was to empower managers to model inclusive behaviors for their teams. But we also realize that whether you're a new manager or an experienced manager, talking about inclusion is not easy, right? Like, do I sit in my one-on-one -on -one and, one -on and say, like, do you belong, Mercedes? Like, <laughs> I want you to belong. Like, it's weird, and I feel uncomfortable even saying it now. Um, so we really had to model what inclusive behaviors look like at the manager level, um, up to the senior executive level, level and cascade that down. Um, another example for a retention side is that we created the most dynamic, in my opinion, um, uh, employee resource group network of all time, right? Where, um, and you can't quote me on that, but uh, where we let our employee resource groups really have a seat at the table when it came to policy making and practice shaping. So a great example is that our LGBTQ resource group, Lift Out, created our company's first gender inclusion and affirmation policy, where we supported trans team members or team members who were thinking of transitioning in the workplace. Um, so that goes to say that, um, We've done some dynamic things at Lyft, but I don't think there's a cookie cutter way to create an inclusion and diversity strategy. I think you kind of have to figure out what works for you and your company and also decide where you are in your inflection point. So for us, we started at around 1,400 employees. Some people are starting at 100. And I would always say start as early as possible, but figure out how you inject inclusion at every single part of the employee life cycle and also the product life cycle. You've talked a lot about different strategies to, to build a team, and I think one of the, the areas that I want to want to steer into now is to kind of hit something that's really personal to our community here in San Francisco and the, the tech industry in, in general. I think the, the tech industry in San Francisco in general has suffered a lot of criticism around being mostly white, mostly male. Um, and, you know, myself being mostly white and mostly male. Hey. I, think there, I think there's two parts of the question. So for somebody like myself who falls into that demographic, what is my role in this, this whole thing? And then I think the other side is how can we, within this environment, like be an agent and, and an ally in this, the, the realm of diversity and inclusion? Yeah, I get that question often. Um, so the reality is that uh, whether you're mostly male, mostly straight, mostly white, whatever identity you kind of identify with, you have a place in the conversation. Um, 
I'm telling you now that as a diversity and inclusion practitioner for Lyft, I did not know necessarily how to show up and be the best ally I could have been to women in the workplace, right? Um, I think about my little sister, think about the industry that she's about to grow up in. You know, I think there, we can't avoid the Me Too movement, but we can't avoid the fact that Me Too has been happening a lot longer than we've been talking about it. Um, and so for me, um, it's not easy being an ally. But what I recognize the fact is that for anyone who could, who's willing to be an ally, that it takes real, I think, critical reflection on how you can leverage whatever platform you're in to advocate for someone who's pretty damn tired of advocating for themselves, right? So oftentimes what happens in companies is that we place the burden of building diversity and inclusion strategies on the outsiders, on the people that have been left out. So yes, employee resource group, you go push that policy forward. And yes, employee resource group, or yes, person of color, or yes, person with disabilities, or yes, caregiver, you go speak out on this issue. And then everyone else is kind of left off the hook. Um, so what I challenge this group to do um, is to really say, one, it's OK to not know what to do, but it's also OK to ask, what can I do? Right? And what we've seen and what I've done um, is just ask, how can I be an ally? Right? Uh, I asked that question uh, after I misgendered someone. I had to ask my qu the question of, how do I ask about your pronoun? Right? Not your pronoun preference, uh, right? but your pronoun. Like, and, what do I, and, and how do I address you? And the same way is, how do I introduce myself and let the audience know what my pronoun is? Um, but it took a question. It took the ability to step out of my comfort zone to ask what I can do. Um, it took the ability to speak up, because folks who are you know, in marginalized experience sometimes get tired and fatigued of having to always speak up, or sometimes they'll never do it. But the ability to kind of step over and outside of our comfort zone and just ask how I can be an ally, um, and to actually be an ally, and to model what allyship is, uh, because in our guts, we know when we see something, we witness something that feels exclusionary and that we know is wrong, that's a step of courage. And if everyone did that in this room, challenged themselves to be more cognizant about the experiences of folks who have been left out, or in their spaces, stepped out of their comfort zone to be allies, um, I really think that we're going to see the change that we're looking for in this world. Because it's not about the policies, it's not about the practices at the end of the day, uh, but it's about the people creating those policies and those practices. And so if we become better as a community, we further um, that experience of inclusion uh, more broadly here in San Francisco, but honestly around our world. Thank you. Um, the, the big thing that came up for me is like, thinking about a lot of experiences where I could show up better as an ally for yeah. some really close friends of mine. Yeah. Who, either come from backgrounds or are going through new life phases. And so thank you for providing me the courage. And I hope you all feel the, the same way to go out and show up for people in that way. Absolutely. Um, so you've spoken a lot about action and how all of this, the most important thing is action. What are three actions anyone in here can take to be a better advocate for diversity and inclusion and everything else that, we, that we've been talking about? in their workspace, their communities, their personal lives? What are the what are the three actions that we can take? Oh, OK. So I struggle with this one, because I kind of already dropped my three actions earlier, uh, which is you know um, to talk about it, to be courageous, and respect the best of intentions, and obviously to take action. Um, and threes are so good. So now I want to come up with three good ones. But what I will say is that um, no matter what space you're in, uh, no matter what company you work for, no matter how difficult or how easy it is to have these conversations, um, these type of conversations have a place in the workplace. Um, what we're seeing as an industry is a rise in employee activism 
where employees now more than ever are holding their CEOs accountable, and I kind of talked about it a little bit earlier, um, or their company leaders accountable. And so what I would say is that be courageous in having tough conversations about your experiences with your leaders. Um, and I've seen, not only at our company, but at adjacent companies, literally a change of heart and a change of perspective where folks realize the impact that their company, their environments are having on their experiences on a day-to-day. -day. Um, some folks say, well, we're not ready to start a diversity inclusion program, or we're not ready to start having these conversations. It's never too early to have a conversation around inclusion. Um, I'd also say that part of being a good ally is educating yourself on different experiences and different worldviews. This is a good start, right? But finding spaces like these that challenge our comfort zones, that challenge our conventions, but that opens up our minds and our hearts to different experiences that are in this world. So even as an ally, I know that I can find spaces, especially in San Francisco, uh, where you can learn about somebody else's experiences um, and push our comfort zone there. And then I, would, I think the last piece is, I'm gonna always go back to action. You don't have to tell the world what your action is, but commit to one action walking out of this room about what you can do to better your communities and your workplaces by simply starting the one that conversation, but two, um, actually putting together some type of strategy that moves your organization forward to be more, being more inclusive. Um, but if I had to go back to one, it really is start having the conversations, because I think we learn more by these type of interactions uh, than we do by all the, the noise that happens in the media about what's happening in our world. That's our show for this week. Thanks again for tuning in to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life, and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. Check us out at ivy.com for life-changing advice and gatherings, and the foremost thought leaders shaping our world today. For more information about the Ivy community, and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us via membership at ivy.com. Dream big and stay inspired. This episode is brought to you by Emerge 212 Office Space Elevated, New York City's premier operator full-service office suites. Emerge 212's fully furnished offices are sleek, sophisticated, and high-tech, perfect for seasoned entrepreneurs who want to put their best foot forward, companies seeking to launch a New York City team, or businesses looking to secure an address in the city with virtual office capabilities. With locations near Grand Central, Rockefeller Plaza, and Columbus Circle, Emerge 212 enables companies to elevate their meeting and business experience through high-end, customized spaces, so your business can focus on operating, not operations. To begin working out of Manhattan's premier office space, or to reserve a conference room for an upcoming event, visit Emerge212.com. Mention Ivy and you'll receive two months of complimentary rent on a 13-month lease.